0: pray that as we look at your word, that we would see clearly the superiority and the glory of Jesus. And Lord, I pray as we wade through very difficult verses, that God, we would have a heart to understand. And Lord, that you would reveal what these words mean. Lord, I pray that we would see that Believing in Jesus is not a New Testament idea, but it is the plan and the promise of God that unfolds from Genesis all the way through Revelation. I pray that today our understanding of that would just grow and praise and worship to you. Lord, please give me the grace to share this in a way that is right, and Lord, I pray that you give me strength in my weakness. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen you got your Bible this morning, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. This morning, we're looking at a message entitled, A Far Superior Priesthood. A Far Superior Priesthood. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see that in order to establish that Jesus has a far superior priesthood, he's going to give two main arguments in the flow of 11 through 14 and verses 15 through 19. But maybe you weren't here with us last week, and it's important that we try to slow down a little bit as we get started. We've been looking at this figure in the Bible called Melchizedek, because Jesus comes from a priesthood that doesn't descend, it doesn't come from Levi. It comes from a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. Last time we were together, we looked at three different really questions. The first one was, where is he? Where is he found? And the passages that we found him, one was in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, we see this figure, Melchizedek, king of Salem. He Abraham is coming back from a battle in which he rescues Lot, women, and children as they were captured from Sodom. And as he's coming back, it says in Genesis 14, 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. A very, very mysterious figure. And outside of Genesis 14 and this passage, we read about him in verses 17 through 20, really not much about him until we get to Psalm 110 a thousand years later. So this is 2000 BC and a thousand years later he's mentioned in Psalm 110 in a messianic psalm and we're left with what in the world is happening. Who is Melchizedek? Last time we talked about who is he and we talked about the idea of is he an angel? And I think that, I really don't think there's any way he's an angel because of the way he's described. Other people think that maybe this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. They think this is a Christophany. And, and while I think that that's not a crazy explanation at all, I think there's under, it's understandable why people come to that conclusion I think that what we have when we look at Melchizedek is that he is a type. And when we think about a type, the question you may be thinking of is a type of what? And that's a good question, as I mentioned last time. A type of what? That's the idea. And so I was looking at David King, who wrote a book on preaching out of the Old Testament. And I'm going to use his material here as I describe types and illustrations of types. I got in the car last week and one of my kids said, dad, I I wish you'd have given more examples of types. And so I think that that was good feedback. I want to try to go through this a little bit more. You know, one man said it's kind of a visual theology. God pictured the truth to preach the truth. And King goes on. He says a type is a shadow. Now try to stand here with me. A type is a shadow whose greater reality is the substance. The shadow could be a person, an event, or an institution in the Old Testament that God designed to prefigure something greater than itself. Did you catch that? It's something in the Old Testament. It is a, it's something that God designed a person, an event, or an institution to prefigure something greater than itself. These types are designed to point us to Jesus. They're visual lessons of what is to come. And so another thing here that is said, uh, a type is a real person, place, object, or event. It is true, real, and factual, not made-up allegory. That God ordained, it resembled Jesus's person and work, not by mere coincidence, but by divine plan. That's significant. Some examples of this that King gives are the ones you commonly hear, but one type in the scripture is Adam. Adam, have you ever heard people say, Christ the second Adam. You see, the reason why they talk about it like that is because Adam is a real person whom God ordained to function as a type of the one who was to come. King says, in other words, Adam was a predictive pattern for Christ. Both men stand at the head of a stream of humanity. Adam, for all who are condemned and dying, and Jesus for all who are justified and living. It's a type. The second type that he gives here, special days in the Old Testament provide another example of types. Paul says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And then he says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. King says, Paul points out among other things that the special days of the old covenant were shadows of Christ. In other words, God designed them to be suggestive shapes of a future reality and Christ fulfills them by being in himself the substance of all that they signified. Now, now it's important that we see this because it wasn't just by accident that Adam, the historical Adam, became a type of the Lord Jesus in which we could see the majesty of Christ even on greater display. The shadows, those days of the old covenant, the Sabbath, the festivals, all of it, they pointed to Jesus. And when we look at the shadows, we get a sense of the anti-type because the shadow is called a type and the fulfillment is called an anti-type. Another example that King gives, the temple and its sacrificial system. You remember when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And what did the people think he was referring to? They were like, you're telling me you're going to build that temple back in three days? And he was speaking of the temple of his body. And what was he doing there? He was showing us something. King says, when Jesus read about temple worship and sacrifices, he saw himself. If we were reading over his shoulder, we might hear him say, here I am, sketched out in institutional form, Here's what I've come to fulfill. Other examples in the New Testament of types, you see Moses as a type in Acts 3, David in Matthew 1, Solomon in Luke 11, Jonah in Matthew 12, Israel in Matthew 2, the priesthood, and that's where we are this morning. So I hope that helps because when we look at Melchizedek, people say, wait a minute, who is this mysterious individual? Who is this mysterious individual that pops on the scene that has no father, no mother recorded, no genealogy given, that literally seems to just appear and then vanish? And what I believe is happening is that the lack of information that's not given to us about Melchizedek is intentional because had there been given all this other information, he would no longer serve as a type and so what we see here is is that this individual we saw last time one that I forgot to mention to you that I was really upset about but I was glad that we're going to have a lot of opportunity to talk about it today is this passage right here the one I just showed you in Melchizedek what is he referred to as he's the king of Salem and he's also referred to as who the priest of God most high and the first one, I'll add it to the list from last time, even though for last time I didn't mention it. Just as Melchizedek was both king and priest, Jesus was the ultimate king-priest. That's gonna be significant this morning because the kings come from the line of, of with a J, Judah. The priests come from the line of, Levi. And so what we have here is wait a minute. The king comes from Judah, the priest comes from Levi. How in the world can there be a king priest? Well, Melchizedek was a type of the one that was to come. We also learned that just as Melchizedek was known for righteousness and peace, Jesus, the anti type, far surpasses Melchizedek. He is perfect righteousness and perfect peace. Just as Melchizedek's priesthood was not based on genealogy, it wasn't based on Levi, it wasn't based on heredit- his hereditary line. What happened, Jesus' priesthood was based solely on the call of God. They were appointed, both of them, priest of God Most High. Just as Melchizedek's priesthood had no beginning or end, he just seems to come on the scene and depart. He's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ who has a priesthood who is forever. Just as Melchizedek is recognized as greater than Abraham, we see the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than Melchizedek. And we see that there's no other name under heaven that every tongue will will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then finally, just as Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abraham, think about how our eternal king priest blesses those in him. You see the examples of the types that we see in Melchizedek? I was reading one commentary a couple of weeks ago, and it said, you know, his, Melchizedek's priesthood was, was universal, in the sense of the way God ordained it, Christ's priesthood was universal, not national like Aaron's. Christ's priesthood was royal. Christ's priesthood was righteous and peaceful, unlike the priesthood of Aaron. Melchizedek, foreshadowing Christ, had a priesthood that was personal, not just hereditary. It it was a, a priesthood that was eternal, not just temporary. And so what we're doing is this. We're looking at Aaron, and we're looking at Melchizedek, and we're going, look at how Melchizedek points to Jesus, and now we see the superiority of Jesus over the tribe of Levi, and the Melchizedekian, say that a lot, Melchizedekian priesthood far outshadows the Aaronic priesthood. You may be thinking, I'm not understanding the thing that you're saying. Just hang in there. Hang in there. Hang in there. Two main arguments this morning. A far superior priesthood. The first thing we're going to see in verses 11 through 14 is the inferiority of the Aaronic priesthood. The inferiority of the Aaronic priesthood. Now let's read verse 11 through 14. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law what further need would have been for another what what further need would here have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron for when there is a change in the priesthood there is necessarily a change in the law as well for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, notice the right off the bat in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what does that mean? What does the word perfection mean there? If perfection were attainable through the Levitical priesthood, We know about the word perfect because it's referred to Jesus in the book of Hebrews. You could go back to Hebrews 2.10. It says, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We see it in Hebrews 5 verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So what does he mean then when he speaks of it here? If If perfection were attainable... Through the Levitical priesthood, the word perfect, the word perfection, it has the idea of reaching fulfillment or reaching a goal. Now think about it. If the Levitical priesthood could reach the goal that God designed in his plan there wouldn't be a need for another order of priests. One of the ways to see this is, you know, that which reaches the goal. The perfection of the goal here would be that which brings people to God, that which makes people right with God, that which forgives sins. And here in Hebrews 7, in verse 19, look at how it's used for the law made nothing perfect. So he starts out in verse 11, he uses the word perfect, and he does a bookend on verse 19. And he starts out in 11, perfect, and then he finishes it up with perfect in verse 19. And what does he say? But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It's as if he's saying, if, access to God had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need here would have been for another priest? This is huge. And in fact, because the law revealed the holiness of God and it also revealed the sinfulness of man, the law didn't make people closer to God in accessibility. It actually kept them further away. Now think with me, what was there in your face when you went to the temple? If you stood above the temple and you, if they had drones back then and you were looking down at the temple, what would you have seen clearly that separated the Holy of Holies from common man? What was it called? There was a a veil and that veil was illustrative of the fact that instead of bringing you into the presence of God, it actually revealed to you your lack of access in it, to it. And so what he's doing here is he's showing them something. He's saying, look, let me tell you about Jesus. Here we have these Jews. This wouldn't be necessary if he was writing to Gentiles the reason why a lot of Gentiles hear this and they go, what in the world? Why is this important? Because these Jews grew up understanding something that if there was a priest, he had to be according to Levi. And now the people that would have them go another direction would very commonly have said, Jesus can't be the priest. He's not from the tribe of Levi through the family of Aaron. He comes through a completely different tribe. Do you not understand that the priesthood always comes through Levi? But what is he doing? He's saying, look, let me show you something. Let me build it from the ground up. I recognize the type of questions that arise when I attribute the one who comes from the line of Judah to be superior to the tribe of Levi. But let me ask you something. If access to God would have been achieved through the Old Testament law, through the Levitical priesthood, then why would there even be a need for a greater priesthood? See what he's doing? He's building it up and he's saying, look, it wasn't attainable through the Levitical priesthood. I, I, you know, Melchizedek Melchizedek surfaces in 2000 BC, Genesis 14, and... Five hundred years later is going to be fifteen hundred BC, and around that time, as I was listening to different things about this, and one of the things I learned, you know, fifteen hundred BC, now the Aaronic priesthood is functioning. Fifteen hundred BC, if you go through a priest, it's going to be a priest of hereditary, and that priest had to be born through the line of Levi. But wait a minute, 500 years after the priesthood is established in 1000 BC is this passage that pops out of nowhere in Psalm 110, and it's messianic, and look what it says. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And what's fascinating about the seven verses in Psalm 110 is that they are seven verses that point to the coming Redeemer that will save Israel. And so right off the bat, you go, wait a minute. If the Levitical priesthood was meant to be an end-all, if it was meant to be the fulfillment, then why would God surface Melchizedek 500 years before the establishment of the priesthood through Aaron? And then 500 years later, why would he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speak through the pen of King David? Why would he share with him that there would be a priesthood that he would raise up that would literally come in and supplant and replace the priesthood of Aaron. This is, I pray this this hits you. I pray it gets out the way it got in. Sometimes I feel like it doesn't. But, But this really just began to just give me a sense of awe and majesty of the Lord. You see, what happens here, notice this parenthesis. Now, this is a confusing parenthesis in verse 11. He says, for under it, the people receive the law. And some people say, wait a minute, that's not true. The law came before the priesthood, not the vice versa. So what do you mean? Well, I was looking at one commentary, and they said, on this view, the author is saying that the law covenant was established on the priesthood, not that the law given to the people established that priesthood. The idea that um, this was, the priesthood was central to all about the law. God gave the law before, but the heart of the law and so much of the law was illustrating and showing the priesthood and how it functioned. And so as we go through here, we see the parentheses, and then we go, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Now, now there's a couple of words here we got to stop and look at. The first one's the word another. It means of another kind, in another form. What further need would there have been for another priest? I had a Volkswagen Passat. It was one of the worst decisions I ever made, purchasing a car. We just got married, and I had a chance to keep Ann's old Toyota. But it, it would have been the smartest thing to do. That car would have gone 300,000 miles. I thought it was a great idea to take the money and, uh, and try to buy a Passat. It was awful. I had this car. It was a beautiful car. It was, I mean, it drove. It was just awesome. You could get on the interstate, and it was one of those kind of cars where you go, ah, this is why people get speeding tickets, you know? Like, that's why. Because if you drive old cars, you know, you're like, I don't know how people speed. My car's barely getting to the speed limit. But you get in a good car, and you're like, oh, that's why. Well, this car leaked oil. I'm talking, it leaked oil, and when you take it to Volkswagen, they would say, I'm so sorry, but in order to get to the leak, it's four and a half hours of labor. You're like, what? Four hours of labor back then in 2003 was at least 90 bucks an hour. So before they ever look at the leak, you're $400 into it. And then it, they, they get the leak fixed, and you're like, oh, I just paid $600 for an oil leak. And then I'm driving, and I get to a red light, and it starts smoking and it would just smoke, and the temperature gauge is going. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. When I got rid of that car, I didn't go look for another Volkswagen. That would have been another of the same kind. You see what I'm saying? Now, think what he's doing here. I wanted something different. He's saying, look, this is huge. What further need would there have been for another priest?" what the people of God needed, what we needed. Think about it. Here we are in 2021 in the promised plan of God when God made his promise to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Everyone who's placed their faith in Christ, they are now literally part of that fulfillment of the promised plan of God. And here's what I want you to understand. What we need today is not another priest like the one in the line of Aaron. We needed something far different. That's his argument. He's like, look, if perfection, if access to God could have come through the old way, then we never would have left the old way. And you think, what is this for? Here's these Jews, they're persecuted, they're facing martyrdom and they're going, you know what, I may go back. I may go back to Judaism. I may go back to the law. I may go back to the... Now, here's what's fascinating. This is written around 67 AD. Now, one of the fascinating internal witnesses of the scripture is that in a passage where we clearly see there's no need any longer for the priesthood of Aaron. By the way, three years later, The temple is destroyed. I wanted to look this week at the line and the history of Aaron. You can find it if you want, if you're interested in it, see me. Guess where it stops? 70 AD. Why does it stop there? Because if a priest doesn't have a temple, it makes the priesthood what? obsolete. Isn't that fascinating? You see, under the plan of God, what he was doing is that a lot of people could not see the image. They could not understand the shadow, and God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty said, enough! Done! Titus and the Romans came into Jerusalem in 70 AD. There would be no temple any longer for people to come in and offer sacrifice. You see, what we're looking at here, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? This is amazing. The word arise, it literally... It seems to be pointing, you know, it's used in Deuteronomy 18 in in the Septuagint. You see this in the New Testament, but look what I will raise up, raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember, I told you this before, but I remember the first time I heard this, I was so excited. I was in my 20s, and I remember, you know, you read the Gospels, and the people often would say things like this Is this the prophet? Is this the prophet? What are they talking about? Is this the prophet Moses told us about? But what did he what is he how is he referred to there? It's the idea that God will raise him up. And so how is it referred to here in Hebrews? It's referred to in Hebrews that another priest to arise. After the order of Melchizedek, he is the fulfillment of the greater prophet. What's really fascinating is while this text is clearly focusing on Jesus as the king priest, he is the prophet, priest, and king, as Calvin pointed out during the Reformation. And what's interesting is even while he's in a context where it's clearly focusing on the king priest, we're reminded even here that Yeah, you know, he's greater than the prophets. This is far majestic than we can even imagine. Arise. We keep going here and we see, I want you to look at some examples of this in the New Testament that are from Paul. And and look at this, look at Romans 8.3. The law is parallel. The law is symbolic The law and the Levitical priesthood go hand in hand. Do we understand that? So if I'm referring to the law, you could almost put in the Levitical priesthood because they go together. But look what it says here. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh. Now look at those next three words. Could, not, do. Couldn't accomplish it. The law cannot make you closer to God as you seek to bridge the gap that exists between you and a holy God due to your sin. It goes back to the ladder analogy. A lot of people think that the way they get closer to God is by climbing a ladder. Some people do that in religious ceremony they get stuck in a religious ceremony and they almost start thinking my religious ceremony is making me closer to God than others because I have this type of ceremony. But the whole principle of Hebrews and the whole principle of Pauline theology is that no, the law was weak. The law was unable. The law could not fulfill or could not enable what it demanded. Another passage, Galatians 3.21 is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Now, look, notice this next phrase. For if a law had been given that could give life. It's another way of saying it. If a law had been given that couldn't give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, and you could add to the end of that in your notes, and there would be no other need for another priesthood. Because if the law can give life, then we are you know, hunky-dory with the Levitical priesthood because it does everything it was intended to do, that it would bring about the ability for people to draw near to God. But it doesn't, though. Another passage that's later on in the book of Hebrews, for since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. I love this. Acts 13 says, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You sort of get, you know, we have the luxury of looking at scripture as a whole, don't we? And we can say, wow, look at how the Holy Spirit is authoring the book. But but this is his point. You know, it it would be like saying, look, I I know you're tempted to go back to Judaism, but why would you go back to Judaism when you could never be freed? You could never find release. It doesn't deliver, It, it doesn't enable you, it doesn't free you. And what's his point? He's saying, look, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. Galatians 3 says it like this Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He says, Rather than one named after Aaron, this is another priesthood. I was thinking about the priesthood of Aaron here at the end of verse 11. He says, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? We should have realized there's a problem right off the bat. When in Exodus 32, we see Aaron and we see problems with the golden calf, you know, we should have recognized there's a problem with the law and the Aaronic priesthood when we go to the fact that in the Gospels, all these priesthood that, that come out of the Levitical line, who are some of the biggest problems that Jesus deals with at his crucifixion? Are the priesthood advocating for Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, or are they coming against the promise, plan of God. You see what's happening here? He's saying, look, there's a need for something greater. And and then he says, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, Now, this is a really tough one. What does this mean? If there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law as well. One place that I think is helpful to start with, is that the Mosaic Law had nothing contained in it about a new order of priests. It was pre-Mosaic in Genesis 14, and later after Moses when David penned in Psalm 110. So one of the things that's necessary one reason there must be a change in the law, as one commentator says, the law prescribed that all priests must be from the tribe of Levi. If there's another priesthood which supersedes the Levitical, then there must be a change in the law. So that makes sense. You would expect that to be reflected in the law. But, but there was one part here that I thought was the most helpful. It was, it was a quote from a guy named Jocelyn. And listen to what he says. There are radical changes that occur in both the priesthood and the law that involve both discontinuity and continuity. This involves the cessation of the Levitical priesthood. He comes on down. He says this cancellation necessitates the cessation of the Levitical priesthood, and it shows it's due to Christ's fulfillment of what is foreshadowed. He calls it a transformed law. He says, it is argued here that the law has been transformed in light of the Christ event. What is meant by transformation is simply this. The transformed law is the result of what occurs when Christ intersects the law. This is fun. You remember when Jesus in Matthew 5 said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. So wait a minute. If somebody says, oh, the law is done away with, we would say, wait a minute. Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. Well, there may be the answer. His fulfillment of this, everything the law was pointing to explodes into inner transformation in the gospel of Jesus. You see... um, You know, I heard someone saying it's true. There's two types of religion. There's a religion of dead works, and there's only a religion that's God-ordained that's by grace. If you're here today and you're operating out of the religious system that's 99% of the world religions, it's dead. You may be here today, and and your whole premise of being here is to try to work your way back to God. It's to try to earn favor before God is to try to make yourself right before God. But the problem is, if it's not through the priesthood that is after the Melchizedekian order, it is a priesthood that is unable to bring you to God. That priesthood cannot mediate for you and bring you into the presence of God. You need something greater. You need Christ and you need Jesus you need what he brings. I pray we would see this. I've told you this before, but here's what often happens when people come into the church. They come in, and I've learned this over the years. If I say, hey, are you a Christian? They say, absolutely. And sometimes I'm really bad at asking questions that require yes or no answers. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for you as a substitute for your sins? Well, you tell me what that means. Tell me what would give you confidence if you died today. You know what they say at that point? It's fascinating. More than not, people say, I try to be a good person. Now, wait a minute. They just told me they believed in the substitution and sacrifice of Christ. They just told me they they put their hope in John 3, 16. But when push comes to shove, and I say, what gives you confidence? If you were to die today, you know what they say? I try to be as good a person as I can be and I know God knows my heart. I go to church, I read my Bible, I do all these things. Here's what I want you to see this morning. That way is no different than the Levitical priesthood because it goes through a law and if you seek to be justified based on what you do according to the law, you'll never receive justification If it was able to bring people nigh unto God, we wouldn't need the sacrifice. We wouldn't need the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the book of Hebrews is saying is, look, Jesus is greater. Jesus is far supreme. And you know where he's getting ready to go? As we move from verse 20, 21 into chapter 8, he's showing us the greatness of the new covenant versus the old covenant pray today that you'd be encouraged. I got a lot more to cover, but if I don't stop, we're never getting out of here today. So I'm fast-forwarding all the way to the end. This may be a four-part sermon series, this one sermon. I was thinking about freedom. And, you know, I understand. I mean, I think it would be strange if if we didn't, take serious the the freedoms that we've received as Americans, but I want you to think of something far greater. I want you to go to this passage again. I want you to see something. Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. That's the scene where Jesus, the the preceding verses go like this, you know. uh, They're talking about Elijah, verse 50 of Matthew 27. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The veil signified separation. That veil signified the inability of the Levitical priesthood, the inability of the law, to enable people to come into the presence of God. But in Christ Jesus, by grace through faith, we have access to God. And what the author of Hebrews is wanting us to understand, he's like, look, Melchizedek was designed by God as a type. And as a type, we also have to understand his priesthood, was according to God's design, because it would be the very priesthood order through which Christ would come through, and he would be the king priest. He would be the perfect deliverer, the perfect mediator. It far outshadowed the old. You know, then another passage I was thinking about with freedom. John 8:36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And then look at these passages that deal with freedom. Stan read one of them. But now that we've talked about the Levitical system and the law and the parallel of the law, think about what this means. Romans 8, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. From what? The law of sin and death. The law of sin and death was that law that brought about the Aaronic priesthood, but the law of the spirit of life, because it's a greater, it comes through a greater priesthood, it comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, and it brings freedom. Listen to Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery He's saying, look, understand the purposes of the law, but understand the law was never intended to save you. The law was never intended to make you right unto God. What what has he accomplished in this? He's brought about our freedom. Today we see the inferiority of the Aaronic priesthood. We see in verse 3 of chapter 7, or not three, verse 13 and 14 of chapter seven, we see for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. As we move along next week, we're going to see how Jesus is shown to be superior. We see the inferiority of the line of Aaron, the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, do you know Christ? Do you know him? Are you depending on your work or are you depending on the work of Jesus Christ? It sounds so subtle, but it really comes down to that. If you're depending on your work, You're depending on the law to save you. You're depending on your ability to meet the demands of God to ultimately bring you a sense of acceptance in his presence. But if you're depending on the work of Jesus Christ, you're depending on a greater priesthood. You're depending on a greater mediator. You're depending on the one who tears down the veil and gives you access and the ability to draw nigh unto God the Father. Would you bow your head this morning? We've been studying on Sunday nights that saving faith has to have knowledge. You have to understand at least key components of the gospel in order to even know how to believe unto Christ. It involves knowledge, but it also involves approval. It's approval of that knowledge. You accept that. But so often, that's where people stop. And they think that that is what true saving faith is. It's an intellectual agreement with the things we learn about Jesus in the Bible. Maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what, I absolutely agree with what Hebrews says I believe that Jesus was the greater high priest. I believe he's superior to any priesthood of Aaron. I approve of the facts. But you know, the third key component to true saving faith is that whole issue of what real faith is, trust and dependence. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you a type of individual that has only intellectually agreed with the claims of the gospel? Have you believed and trusted and depended on Jesus to be your mediator? Have you trusted in his sacrifice, unlike the priest in the old covenant? They brought animals to be sacrificed, but Jesus sacrificed himself. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Second 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It would be tragic to go through a study in a series on Hebrews and not trust in Jesus Christ to give you access to God the Father through his blood and through his work on the cross. And I pray today that everybody here would see the beauty and the argument that the author of Hebrews is giving in the inferiority of this Aaronic priesthood and that you would trust upon Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you, God, for how majestic your word is. And God, I pray that, Lord, your spirit would, would help us understand this, and, Lord, we would see the inability of the law, the inability of the old priesthood to forgive us, the inability of the old priesthood to accomplish the goal, the inability of the old priesthood to draw as nigh unto you. But, Lord, I pray we would see that because it was insufficient, that, Lord, you made a better way. And, Lord, this wasn't a reaction to a discovery of the insufficiency of the law. This was foreordained, And Lord, that's exactly why we see Melchizedek predate the law. It was your plan that through the one who would come in the line of Melchizedek, the king priest, the Lord Jesus, that that he would bring us to God. That by grace through faith, that we would find access and true hope in the promises of God. Pray today, Lord, that would be all of our hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me in these last few moments.